So, Carla, thank you so much for joining us for Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. I'm really excited to be talking to you. And as you know, I've been saying this whole time, I love being read to. So for me, this is a wonderful time to sit back, relax, be read to, and do one of my favorite things, which is talk to writers about the books, the worlds that they create, partially because I'm really nosy, but also I'd like to think it's because I'm curious. So thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Shall we dive in? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. Anytime. So what was the influence behind In Search of the Magic Theater? Well, I first began to think about writing this when I was, oh, I suppose in my late 30s or right around 40 and at a point where I was, you know, kind of thinking about making some changes in my life, thinking about whether I should stop working dead-end jobs to support my writing and go back to school? Did I leave a relationship that I was in that, you know, was not a bad relationship, but was not really, you know, necessarily what either of us, um, you know, not the best thing for either of us either. And I remember thinking that, oh, um, Hermann Hesse's Steppenwolf is about someone who's in midlife and that, you know, he, you know, Harry Haller is being kind of a grumpy 50-ish kind of guy. And, you know, he he then has some experiences that uh, force him to change how he thinks about life. And I sort of thought that would be kind of interesting to to kind of switch around for a midlife woman. But at that point, I wasn't really ready to launch into something like that. I had another novel that was underway. And so then a few years later, when I was finishing up my PhD and getting ready to go back into writing fiction, I thought, well, you know, I should really finish up the novel that I had been working on years ago. And of course, then instead of finishing up that one, (laughs) I ended up writing this one. And it ended up being a lot closer to the format of Steppenwolf than I had originally imagined. Initially, I just thought, okay, you know, someone who is at a at a turning point in her life and it's closer to the present rather than back in the 1920s when Steppenwolf was written. And so I ended up thinking, well, yeah, I could use that, that device of having her renting a room and that uh, someone, you know, in the household is kind of intrigued by her. And then the character of what in Steppenwolf had been the landlady's nephew which turned into the landlady's niece. That character definitely uh, took a larger role than I ever expected that she would. I love that the character, I love that, like that you, you know, you had this idea of what the characters were going to do. And then the character took you in a place that you weren't expecting or, or wanted more from the story. I absolutely love that, like letting it be led by the character. Yeah. And, and that, that is how I tend to write that um, when I'm writing fiction, yeah, I have some ideas, you know, to begin with about what the characters are like, or what at least one character is like. But then I definitely discover a lot as I go along that they they make choices for me about who they are. And so when I started, started off writing the, the character of Sarah, who is the landlady's niece, I had no idea that she was going to announce that she was a cello student and that she was close to six feet tall. Or really anything else about her. I just knew that she was the landlady's niece, and and she just sort of you know 
took charge and said, well, this is who I am. And this is what I think about life. And this is how I feel about living here. And this is how I feel about our renters and so forth. And she became very, very opinionated. (laughs) But I also love that you listened, that you gave her that space to be opinionated. So with that in mind, can I ask? Oh, sorry, go ahead. You said it was fun? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I think so many times writers don't necessarily have that fun with the characters or even with the writing process. So I love that you said that. Yeah, I am not a writer that tends to suffer over my writing. I'm not going to say that there's no suffering involved because I'm sure every writer occasionally suffers over their writing. But mostly, you know, if, if if I'm stuck with something, I go work on something else that I'm not stuck on and... I'm more enjoying figuring out where it takes me. So, oh, that's great. With that in mind, can we have a reading, please? Sure. I'm going to start with the beginning, because I think that's a convenient place to start. And that introduces us to Sarah. And she'll also be introducing us to our older character. So, my aunt takes in renters. Sometimes this seems very irritating. Why can't we have enough money to keep her house to ourselves? but we don't. And besides, I think she likes having renters. It gives her someone besides me to be interested in and keep an eye on in an inoffensive, hauntly way. A while ago, she took in a new one, a woman named Carrie. Carrie must have been around 40, we eventually realized, although she looked younger. That is, she seemed middle-aged to me because it was clear she was older than I am, but she wasn't awfully middle-aged like some people and my aunt thought she was young. She was slender, with wire-rimmed glasses and an exhausted, slightly strained look that I didn't like. Was she going to be one of those characters who look normal on the surface and then turn out to be slightly unhinged? People who rent rooms have to be careful about their renters, after all. It's not enough that they can pay the rent on time. My aunt isn't always careful enough about this, so I have to watch out a little on her behalf. The household is too normal to attract real bohemian types or druggies, but sometimes we get people who aren't as normal as they seem at first, who turn out to be obsessive-compulsive, or have unstable boyfriends, or think it's okay to eat our food without asking. Once we had a guy who turned out to be seriously paranoid and ended up trying to sue us for being anti-Semitic, which was ridiculous, but very unpleasant. Anyhow, I was not sure that Carrie was the right person to rent our room, even though she was neatly dressed in a plain blue shirt and off-white pants with plain brown clogs, and even though she was friendly enough. I could tell something wasn't quite right with her, and what if it turned out to be something that would bother us? My aunt, however, is more open and forgiving than I am. I think it's something to do with her feelings toward my mother, who was her little sister and for some reason her responsibility. She liked Carrie right away and immediately invited her to move in. Why'd you do that? I asked her after Carrie had gone. After all, usually we try to interview at least three potential renters so that we can pick the likeliest one. She needs a place, said my aunt. That's silly, I said. Everyone needs a place to live and we don't take all of them. Are you going to check her references? Oh, I suppose, said my aunt, which meant that she didn't really intend to bother. 
Carrie needs a calm, clean, orderly home. Well, don't let her make any problems, I said. I don't want any more fragile types with abusive boyfriends or manic depressives who start screaming in the middle of the night or want to slit their wrists in the bathtub. We don't need to live with people like that. No, no, said my aunt reassuringly. Carrie will be just fine. Since Carrie did strike me as intelligent and a fundamentally nice person, even if potentially a bit unstable, I put up no more arguments, and in retrospect, I grant that my aunt was, on the whole, right. Carrie didn't cause us any real problems during her stay. Instead, she roused my curiosity to an unusual degree. Normally, I try to keep my nose out of the renter's business and hope that they'll have the courtesy to return the favor. But I grew abnormally curious about Carrie. I think my aunt did as well. What a joy. You know, can we go back to, it seems a lot of time, or I think what I'm asking for is advice. So I I know some writers who will be writing a book and then feel like either it's not coming right now or the ideas or the characters or it's just something and it isn't quite working and they, they get really frustrated and they either put it away for never or I guess like we were talking about like suffer through it and I'm curious about because you said like this one was one that you wanted to write and then you came back to it and when you thought you were coming back to it you actually went you know to another one and but you still came back to it so one is I guess what is it that kept you coming back? And then what do you think it is about the time when you did write it, what made that the right time? Ah, okay. I think we got a little bit, um, maybe I wasn't clear enough on which book that I left behind and and came back to and so forth. Um, The book that I had been planning on coming back to was not, this one was more, I had the idea at one point in the late 90s and I wasn't yet ready to write it. Okay. Um, and so then when I was feeling like I was ready to write fiction again, after having spent a lot of time in graduate school, not having time to think about fiction, then I thought, oh, I have this you know, novel that I've written a lot of and I should come back to it. Mm-hmm. But instead of going to that one, I found that I was ready to write this one, which I had not started before. So to kind of answer the question that you're now asking about things that one puts aside and comes back to, that book that I have not read from and have not finished that I began in the 90s is one that I wrote most of in the 90s and didn't quite finish, you know, went off to graduate school. And it is one that I do plan to finish. It's not one mm. that I'm stuck on, but I think partly I need to make cuts on it because I've realized okay. that it's quite long and I do need to do some tying together on it. And so for the last few years, periodically, I will think, okay, that's the book that I'm going to finish this summer when I'm not teaching. And mm. then I will then proceed to then turn to some other project <laughs> that is either new or that also needed to be finished and do that one instead. So it's, it's kind of odd. So with the one that I, you know, with In Search of the Magic Theater, which I just read the beginning of, that one, it was merely a question of that I had had a vague idea that someday I would get to and that at a certain point then it kind of said, okay, now's the time. You're not going to work on that other project. 
And I love that you still have it. Yeah, I don't really abandon projects. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are there are some that I have abandoned or that are probably abandoned, but mostly if I stop on a writing project, it's with the idea that well, right now is not the right time to work on it. I will come back to it. And sometimes that is years later. I have some novels that I've been working on off and on for a number of years. And so In Search of the Magic Theater is a little unusual in that respect, in that while I had the idea several years before I wrote it, uh, once I started writing it, I wrote it very quickly, that I kind of would work on it almost every day, you know, like before I, I kind of work on it in the morning, and then I would, I would go to the university and do, you know, work on the courses I was going to teach the next year, (laughs) and do that for a few hours. And then I would come home and then it would be like, oh, but I really want to write some more on this. And so I would write some more. And then maybe I would write some more on my PhD in the evening. So it was an odd, you know, atypical kind of, but but very, very nice way of, of working. So very productive, mostly free of annoyances from other people, mm. um, except for a brief period when I visited my parents and my elderly father would periodically interrupt me. Um, But, you know, what can you say when, you know, people are old and lonely and don't see you very often, of course, they are likely to interrupt you. Yeah, you know, but um, what advice would so it does sound like you were super productive, like just absolutely incredibly productive. Do you have any tips? on like how to be productive and do like so many things at once? Sure, because I think this is something that you know that, that people have trouble with, mm-hmm. and I'm not going to say that everybody can be as productive as I am when I'm at my peak. And of course, there are times when I'm not productive at all. Um, but as someone that you know spent the first, basically the first twenty years of my adult life as a fiction writer who was not in an MFA program, not writing to support myself, but wanted to have a lot of different experiences. I would take these, you know, like temp jobs or, you know, office assistant jobs and things that that I mostly did not have to think about when I was not there, Mm. except for when they were stressful. And I really learned to and at that time, I was writing short fiction rather than novels. It's harder with novels. At that time, I really trained myself to like write when I was on public transit, write when I was on break at work, during my lunch hour. You know, whenever I had a free moment, I was kind of thinking in terms of my fiction. And that if I didn't have a, a new idea for whatever I had been working on, I would switch to some other thing and kind of go back and forth. And so, you know, like instead of letting myself be stuck on one thing, you know, whenever I, whenever I kind of ran dry on one thing, I would move to something else and then try to come back to that, that thing that I had been stuck on. And so that worked really well for short fiction because I could have a, you know, a number of different stories underway and I could go back and forth until I would finish one. 
And sometimes, of course, I would write one in a day and be happy. And mm. sometimes I would, you know, be working on it for months, but also working on other things. And I think that was very good for learning to to work on novels, because on the one hand, when I'm writing novels, it works best for me if I do have, you know, like a nice big chunk of time, mm. like summer being off from school, where there are not a lot of other time constraints and demands on my time. I mean, that maybe I need to do research for my teaching job, but that I don't have to do it at some particular time of day or mm. some particular week. And so, you know, that's when I'm most productive for writing long fiction. But at the same time, you know, once I, once I became a professor and had all these daytime responsibilities with teaching and putting together classes and so forth, I would just, you know, write a bit in the evening after I had kind of finished off things that I needed to do in the day. I think it's harder to finish a novel that way because okay. when you have a big chunk of time, then you really can move forward on it very swiftly. You can read through the whole thing without a lot of interruptions, but that nonetheless working on it in, you know, fairly regular chunks of time even if they're small chunks of time, you can at least, mm. you know, like write a scene in an evening or do a conversation or think about, well, how am I going to tie these two scenes together? So I just try to be very flexible in what I'm doing. And also I try to, you know, have more than one idea that I care about at one time, because it is very easy to be kind of stuck with, well, I'm not sure what's going to happen next on this one. Or, oh, um, I need to do some more research to find out how I can address that problem in this one. Mm -hmm. And I'm not finding it online, or I'm not able to go online, or I'm not able to go to the library. So the more flexibility I can build in, you know, the better. And that, sure, I prefer to write in the morning, but mm -hmm. I can write at any time of day to some extent. And I'm trying to train myself back to writing in the morning instead of late at night. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I love that flexibility. Sure. With all that in mind, could we hear some more reading, please? Sure. Let me um, let me pick another uh, another selection. Let's see. I'm going to give you a selection from Carrie's point of view. Okay. Shortly after she has moved into the landlady's house. I sit about in my godforsaken room, a blessed island of wild disorder in my landlady's spotless, well-maintained, almost suburban house, and feel all the discontented achiness and creaking of my fortyish state. What on earth possessed me to rent a room in a place like this, and how long will it be before my landlady tires of my craziness and kicks me out? Well, I suppose that even in my wildest excess, I'm not drawn to live in squalor. There must be an underlying order to my disorder, a bourgeois backdrop to my bohemian tendencies. I'm a bad girl, but bad only to a point. My landlady will tolerate me a while, I think, because, first off, she's a good-hearted person, and secondly, I sense that buried in her past was just a little taste of hippiedom an unsatisfied craving, perhaps, for the summer of love. I envision her as one of those nice girls of the 60s who wore her hair up 
in an attempt at a beehive and felt like she was being terribly fast when she dared put on a bit of green eyeshadow, but who secretly thought those hippie chicks in art class with the long hair and beads were very, very exciting and lucky. She does, after all, wear a touch of black eyeliner in a highly unbecoming but tellingly 60s manner. And then there's her little niece, who's actually not little at all, but close to six feet tall and very disapproving in her well-brought-up way. I hadn't thought young people were so polite to their elders anymore, but this one is a model of decorum and plays the cello diligently for several hours a day, which I gather makes finding renters more of a challenge, despite the fact that she plays very well. The difficulty in living with a musician, of course, is not so much bad playing as that you will hear the same passages repeated numerous times, possibly even in more than one key if the player is getting playful. We'll see if it bothers me. I've spent a good deal of my own life practicing music, though not as seriously. So I like to imagine that the niece's cello will mitigate the white slip covers tarting up the dining room chairs. Ah, bourgeois life, cleanliness and order are always in style, although sometimes more insistently than other times, but decor has its fashions. No more the bowls of plastic fruit of my childhood, or the orange-brown and then the avocado-green and mustard of my teens. Now we've reached the point where every well-appointed middle-class home is decked out in a color scheme of dark green and a sort of drab pink. My landlady has dutifully swathed her sofa in cabbage roses in these shades, matching her curtains and valences, and she's wallpapered the living room in green stripes with roses. If it weren't for the photos of her family, we could be in a hotel. But I gather that white slipcovers are the new direction. I'm working in the opposite direction by stringing up the kind of India print gauze I never had when I was younger. My landlady took a look inside my room, a sort of double take, and then assured me that this retro look was very imaginative of me. I don't suppose it will last long. I don't suppose I will bide here very many months. Where was I in my life before I came here? Oh, that's really asking for it. I could go on at length about the disgusting, stifling trap I'd crawled into, though it wasn't a trap made by anyone but myself. In my 20s, I was passionate about everything. Men, career, everything. If I couldn't be passionate about it, I had no interest in it. And then I had one of those unhappy loves that never even develops, but which leaves the one who loves in a state of utter desolation, utter misery, floundering along near suicide. I realize that such loves are typical of a certain romantic variety of sensitive person, of whom I was just another one in a long line of Werther-esque beings. But there it was. I was desolate, howling at the moon. I wallowed in my agony. Yet only half of me was made in that wild mold. Half of me is practical, sensible, balanced, responsible, and boring. And this practical health, half of myself, was repelled by this madness and by so much careening about on the dark side of the moon. The practical half got a practical job in an office, and the next thing you know, I had managed to enchant a poor guy who had no concept of what he was in for. And so then she says a little bit about her husband. You know, I, I love her voice. 
there's something that's just so engaging about her voice that makes you just want to like really like get to know her as a character um like as a, if she was a person who walked in you'd want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with her oh that's delightful to hear i'm, I'm <laughs> always happy when you know readers or listeners you know find find the voices appealing so can we talk about so i i do i really like that they're different ages as well because so many times I feel like there's there's characters that are either, I don't know, like in their 20s or like younger. And it's as if older people either don't exist or only exist in relation to this younger character who's either saving the world or doing something. And can you just, if for my final question, <laughs> could you talk about kind of, um, I guess, either the balancing or the creating each different character? Because they're, they're so, they have their own ethos they have their own voices and can you just talk to us a little bit about your process for that okay i think in a sense while the while the two characters are quite different they they do both each in her own way you know pull on various various things out of me you know that on the one mm -hmm. hand you know when i was writing it i was you know kind of in midlife and certainly some of the things about carrie you know, relate to things about me. I used to work in theater and Carrie is a person that um, had worked in theater before her marriage. And then mm -hmm. as the, as the novel proceeds, she gets back into it, which is not something I've done. And, and while Sarah is not that much like what I am now, to some extent, I, for Sarah, I drew on what I was like around the age of 10 when mm -hmm. I was very much like classical music is everything. Why would you listen to anything else? <laughs> um, which is, a, you know, an attitude that I've long since abandoned. I love to listen to all kinds of things. I have so many different kinds of music, um, you know, in my collection and in my head. But but Sarah is very much a, a person who's, you know, like she's she's very she's very defined about how she. Uh, thinks the world should operate and that, you know, she doesn't like the fact that her mother was kind of a hippie and her mother is dead by, you mm. know, by the time the story begins. And she, she has a real problem with her mother. I, I wouldn't say that I ever really had that kind of a problem with my mother, but I was, when I was 10, very, I don't know, I think kind of, that was probably the most conservative point in my life. Mm. Um, and so, so I definitely drew on that for, for what Sarah was like in her early twenties. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the two characters, I don't know, they, they came to life very nicely and very naturally for me. And I didn't, I didn't devote a lot of conscious thought to them okay. again. I mean, not that I avoid conscious thought when I am writing a novel, but I did want to explore the experience of a midlife woman and and as I, as I said earlier, Sarah kind of elbowed her way into the narrative uh, <laughs> in, in a much bigger way than I expected so that the, the chapters go back and forth from Sarah to Carrie back and forth. There, there are never two chapters in a row by the same narrator. It's always back and forth. So that was not something I had in mind when I began it, but that was what ended up working nicely. So... I would say in a certain sense that I'm a, I'm a person that, you know, I do have ideas ahead of time when I'm, mm -hmm. when I'm writing something, but then I very much let it intuitively develop as I go along. And in terms of the, 
of writing about older characters, not like I don't enjoy writing younger ones, but of course, as I get older myself, and I'm certainly no longer, you know, a 40-ish person, you know, some of my characters are now more the age that I am. Mm. And so I've written about people who are getting ready for retirement and, you know, other, other people that are in a, in a later stage in their life. And I do kind of think a bit in terms of over the course of my various novels and novel projects of having them be about different stages in life. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the novel that I was writing in the nineties that I have not yet finished is primarily about childhood. It does, you know, toward the end get to where the, where the main character is in her thirties, but the, you know, the majority of it is going from when she's in the womb up until she's in, you know, her teens. And so I've kind of looked at things like, okay, this, this one is a novel of childhood or that in search of the magic theater is a novel of midlife, but also, you know, young adulthood or, I mean, I, I actually, you know, find myself characterizing different, different projects in terms of which stage of life they're primarily about. Oh, I really like that. And so I guess for our final stage, <laughs> if we could have one final reading, please. All right. Let me see. What would be a good one, a good one to give you that kind of fits in with both of the ones that I've already done? All right. I'm going to give you another selection from Sarah that is about three quarters of the way through the book. I think Carrie has a boyfriend, said my aunt one afternoon in a sprightly, confidential way. She gets this way from time to time, usually when she's gotten a little too interested in one of our renters. A boyfriend, I said. Why would you think that? She looks happier. She has that special glow. Besides, she doesn't always come home at night anymore. My aunt looked disgustingly smug as she said this. I hadn't somehow noticed any of these things about Carrie. This annoyed me. I didn't want to be nosy, but all the same, I thought I should be aware of things that might affect us, like boyfriends. When did all this start? Oh, I don't know exactly. It's been a while, though. Carrie's gone a lot these days. She still works in her room for hours, but she's out as much as she's in. You've been out a lot lately, too. I suppose that's why you haven't noticed. Oh, I said. Had I been out all that much? I hadn't thought about it, but maybe I had. I'd started all those new ensembles. I had about four of these going in addition to my usual lessons, practice, and orchestra rehearsals. It meant I was gone for all of that, plus now it was more convenient to do most of my practicing away from home between rehearsals. My aunt's comment made me feel contrary, though. I said, maybe it's not a boyfriend. Maybe she's got a girlfriend. Maybe, said my aunt, but I don't think so. I can imagine her having a girlfriend, I said. It seemed possible enough to me. It wouldn't have surprised me if Carrie Zilke had had girlfriends at some time in the past. Yes, said my aunt, but I don't think this is a girl. My aunt has the idea that she can rely on all sorts of strange intuitions she has about people, which often gets on my nerves. 
She's right often enough to bolster her belief in her powers, but whether she's right much more than 50% of the time, I really couldn't say. She thinks she is, but I think the law of averages works in her favor. If you guess right half the time by accident, like flipping a coin, and then add in a few instances of really knowing something, that gives you enough correct guesses to feel like you're almost a psychic. Okay, so you think Carrie has a boyfriend, I said. For some reason, I found this idea mildly depressing. I had always liked the idea that Carrie was not reliant on men or on finding a mate. It was one of the things that made her appealing to me in some ways that most of our other renters were not. It was restful to have a renter who wasn't always whining about the opposite sex and the deficiencies of singles groups or online dating. I liked having a renter who showed no sign of being obsessed with sex, yet who was unlikely to turn out to be a secret fan of kiddie porn or some other awful thing. I think Carrie is going to be very happy, said my aunt. Maybe she's even going to get engaged soon. This assessment made me even more annoyed and depressed. Engaged? What planet was my aunt on? Carrie did not strike me as at all the kind of person who got engaged. I didn't think we were going to be opening the local paper and seeing her picture over an engagement announcement. That would just be unnatural. At the same time, I had to admit that my aunt is intuitive enough that if she thought Carrie was about to get engaged, Carrie must at least be in a pretty good mood. And so maybe Carrie really was getting laid frequently and relatively satisfactorily. This notion did depress me because it made Carrie a different person than the one I thought I knew something about. I didn't imagine I knew Carrie well or knew very many details about her life as a whole, but I did feel as though I had a sense of her, and this whole boyfriend thing conflicted with my impression of her. Have you even seen any boyfriend? I asked. No, never, said my aunt, but I'm sure he exists. Carrie just doesn't bring him to the house. You're imagining him, I said, even though it sounded as though my aunt had sufficient evidence for her hypothesis. If Carrie was staying out all night, the likelihood was certainly stronger that she had a lover than that she had suddenly begun working the night shift. My aunt sighed and apparently decided not to pursue the topic further. How are your rehearsals going? she asked instead. Oh, fine, I said. They keep me pretty busy. How are things going with that guitarist you were working with? There she was, picking out the one male in the lineup. All the cellists I was practicing with were women, and so were the violinist and the pianist. I hadn't planned it that way. Those were just the people I had ended up grouped with. I suppose there are just as many men playing cello, violin, and piano as women, but they weren't playing with me just then. It's going all right, I said. He's good. To my horror, I felt myself blushing slightly. This was all Joey's fault for prodding at me to reveal myself more in conversation. Now there was something between us that didn't exist with my other partners. A weird tension. Is he cute? Inquired my aunt. No amount of disgust on my part had ever managed to expunge this word from her vocabulary. Um, no, I wouldn't say so, I said. Of course, I didn't regard anyone as cute, except possibly as an insult. Joey wasn't round and fluffy or anything else that might qualify as cute. He didn't have grotesquely big eyes like some awful doll 
I supposed I had better say something more informative in a hurry or my aunt would go on and on. He doesn't always comb his hair. My aunt burst out laughing. <laughs> oh, Carla, thank you so much for such enjoyable readings. It's been such a pleasure. Before we go, can I ask you, where can people find the book? Where would you like them to buy it? Ah, well, people can find it in many, many places, because fortunately, it is available through lots of online retailers, really internationally. I've been excited to see it, you know, listed in various British, Australian, French, German, Dutch, uh, you know, all over the place. So, so that's really cool. So it's, it's not geographically limited. On the one hand, it's really nice when people buy directly from my publisher, which is Regal House, because then Regal House and I, you know, get the, you know, we split, you know, the entire payment. On the other hand, we really like to support independent bookstores. So I certainly encourage people to order, you know, if it's not in your local store, to ask them to order it. There's also bookshop.org, which is an online retailer that is trying to give support to brick and mortar independent stores. And so that's another option. But overall, wherever you live in the world, there should be a uh, a good place to get a copy of this book. Oh, that's wonderful. Carla, thank you so much for joining us and for spending this time with us. Well, and thank you so much for inviting me. It's really been a pleasure.